0: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
1: what can 20 years of targeted removals do for cwd prevalence
2: well that was a question we talked about when we just had on kip uh from the nda and found out really it it helps there's a comparative analysis. And maybe you can talk about that a little more. I, th- I thought that was an interesting one that I was not aware of.
1: Yeah. I mean, apparently it makes all the difference. Um, so we talk about targeted removals, some other things that maybe are a little unpalatable to hunters, but can be critical in the fight against this disease.
2: Yeah. And so we had Kip Adams on. He is the chief conservation officer for NDA And, uh, you know, been in the fight for a long time, avid hunter himself, and we talked about all kinds of things, you know, um, hunter behavior was a huge kind of theme within this, like what do we do as hunters? What what have our behaviors done to either help or hurt CWD transmission? We talked about um, interstate uh, transport of captive cervids, a lot of different things um, with a little bit different perspective than some of our other guests. So I think there's a lot there folks are going to be interested in hearing.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's a good listen.
2: Well, awesome. Check it out. Kip Adams from the National Deer Association. Chronic wasting disease. An always fatal and definitely complex neurological disease afflicting cervids across North America and beyond.
1: More than 50 years after its discovery, the impacts of this disease are ramping up quickly while hunters are having to make tough decisions about how they hunt and feed their families.
2: What does this mean for the future of big game hunting? What can be done to stop the spread and conserve our hunting traditions?
1: The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles explores these issues with leading experts from around the country and looks hopefully to a future full of healthy, wild cervid populations.
2: Brought to you by NWF Outdoors and Artemis. Welcome to the Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles.
1: Hey everybody, today we are sitting down for this episode of the CWD chronicles with um, somebody that I think I know is a great voice for hunters. Um, Kip Adams of the National Deer Association is joining us today to talk about everything that NDA does and has done around CWD um, and kind of do a deep dive into what the state of affairs is for hunters and what they can do um, in terms of the disease. So Kip is the chief conservation officer for the National Deer Association he in in his past has he is a certified wildlife biologist. He's served as a deer biologist. Um, he's got multiple degrees in wildlife and fishery science. Um, I know he's a longtime deer hunter and an all around great guy. So we're excited to have him on. Uh, my co-host today is Aaron. Aaron, how you doing?
2: I'm doing excellent, actually. Looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for coming, Kit. Kip, sorry. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Kip, how are you doing?
3: I'm doing well, and uh, I appreciate uh, the kind words you said about me, that uh, all-around good guy thing, is uh, that, that's very nice. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice touch, so uh, I'm glad to be here today. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. All right, so let's jump right in. Can you give our listeners kind of the short and sweet version of what the National Deer Association does, who they are?
3: Sure we're a, we're a national nonprofit wildlife conservation organization with a mission to ensure the future of, of wild deer, uh, wildlife habitat, and hunting. And uh, so you know we take it upon ourselves to make sure that uh, we have healthy deer populations, uh, that hunters have the ability to to go afield after them and you know that, that there's places that they can go and they have access you know to, to, to have uh, hunting opportunities to be able to bring venison home. So we're kind of guardians of the deer, uh, if you will, and we uh, look at disease, we look at nutrition, we look at good management programs, and we kind of oversee all of that and take a close look and, and really monitor that from, from a state agency perspective, from a federal agency perspective, and, and private landowners. So uh, certainly the disease end is really hot today, and uh, we spend a lot of time uh, monitoring CWD and, and anything else that, that impacts our wild deer.
1: Yeah. And so I feel like you come at things from a science perspective, which is really important, I think. And also from a, I mean, from a landowner or a hunter's perspective, you know, like it's kind of the marriage between best practices for management and also the desires of hunters. Because I think, as all of us can agree, without hunters, there probably wouldn't be deer. Um, And so that's, it's important, I think, to serve both sides of the coin.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. You know, and we're in a unique position because we have great working relationships with all the state wildlife agencies, uh, with many of the, the major academic institutions that study deer and, and study uh, wildlife habitat. So uh, we're in a unique spot where, you know, we can take that information and get it right out to the hunters, to the landowners, you know, the folks that could really apply that, you know, and, and just have an actual on-the-ground footprint with regard to managing habitat and, and having healthy wildlife populations. So we we like being in that position. And uh, well, we feel that uh, you know we're, we're doing a pretty good job with that. Just just given how healthy many deer herds are today, and 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 how much more private land is is managed, you know, for deer and, and other wildlife species. So uh, it's a it's a fun place to be, Ashley.
2: Kip, I appreciate that, and I you know why we're here obviously is to talk about CWD, and so let's just start broadly. You know, how do you rank CWD as far as its turn in terms of its ability to impact herd health and and hunting, I mean, that we're all here because we care about deer. Let's just talk about, you know, your professional opinion, how it's looking.
3: Yeah, we, we look at CWD as, as uh, the biggest thing impacting the future of deer herds right now. Um, it's, it's bigger than hunter numbers, uh, certainly bigger than the anti-hunter movement. Uh, it's even bigger than habitat loss. And, uh, and, and that's not just us. The, the vast majority of wildlife professionals see CWD, you know, as that big of a threat. So uh, we're we're firmly entrenched in learning all we can about it. Uh, we're firmly entrenched in, you know, doing what we can as an organization to to share information with, with hunters and, and other managers, you know, to, to be able to fight this disease every single day. So uh, we know there's naysayers out there, but uh, it, it's very clear that anybody who really looks at this, um, they understand the severity of CWD.
1: Yeah, I mean, gosh, what is it? Just in the last month. I mean, maybe it'll be a little bit longer by the time this episode airs. Um, we've got two states that have now popped positive here in the Southeast. That's close to home for me. Um, it's tough out there. I mean, I feel like I feel like for a while I've been telling people, if you don't have CWD, you probably will in, you know, the not too distant future, which is terrible. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, maybe you can speak to kind of some of your constituency and how you feel like, you know, obviously if they have CWD, it's right there in their face. But for for folks that hunt and live in states that haven't yet tested positive, I mean, what are words of wisdom or, anything that you have to say for to them?
3: I think that, I think that you're right with that, Ashley. You know, there, there's a chance they're going to have it. So what we tell people is do everything possible to keep it out. You know, if it hasn't been identified there, you know, lucky you and uh, hey, let's keep it that way. You know, And there's things that everybody can do to help keep it that way. So uh, yeah, we, we let them know the main ways that the disease can spread um, and things that they can do uh, to, to help fight it. And you know, Some get discouraged and think it's all bleak. Um, I don't believe that at all. There's absolutely things that, uh, that everybody can be doing on a daily basis, whether you hunt deer or not, or you're just a wildlife enthusiast, to be able to keep the disease at bay, or uh, if it is in your area, to keep it from spreading.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. What are I mean, we've talked so far on the podcast about the importance of having, you know, your harvested deer tested for CWD, of course, um, I know that it, it looks different in different states as far as the ease of having that done and the cost associated with it or not. Um, but what are some of the things that you would tell people are most important, you know, as a as a hunter, as a sports, as sports women and men that they can do in the fight against CWD?
3: Well, we know that the, the disease can be transferred in several different ways. You know, deer can give it to other deer through urine, blood, saliva, feces, semen. You know, so But there's, there's really two big ways that it moves the most. And uh, so as hunters or as just a wildlife enthusiast, if we literally can do these two things, if we would stop moving live deer and stop moving the high-risk parts of deer that we shoot, we could dramatically reduce the spread of this. And and what I mean by the high-risk parts are the the prions in the deer, they accumulate in certain areas. So those high-risk parts are the eyes, the brain, the spleen, and the backbone. And that's why so many states now, you know, don't allow you to move those parts. They make you debone that meat before you come out of a disease zone or before you cross a state line. So, uh, you know, some hunters look at this and say, man, that's a big inconvenience. And and I'll be the first to say, sure it is. But you know what? Deer are pretty darn valuable. So it's an inconvenience. Absolutely worth doing. You know, if it takes a little bit of extra time to go ahead and debone it, um, hey, if you want to safeguard the future of our, of our deer herds, you know, that's certainly well worth doing in my opinion. So if we just simply do those two things, actually, we can really limit the spread of this and allow the science to catch up and, uh, and figure or give us a way that we can beat this disease.
2: Kip, you're a, you know, you're obviously a, a species specific organization you work for, right? And so some of the folks we talk to cover lots of different wildlife and, you know, our, our broader spectrum, but you guys are the experts on deer. Can you talk to us a little bit about You know, NDA's approach specifically, you know, what you've accomplished, what you hope to accomplish, what your goals are within this fight? Sure. You know, we we want people to understand as much as they can about the disease,
3: uh, but then also understand as much as possible about just simply the value of deer. Uh, If you take a look across the United States right now, only about 4% of the the public buys a hunting license. You know, so we're we're not going to solve anything with 4% of us. So we are firm believers that you know, to really beat this, we need the other wildlife enthusiasts out there that don't necessarily buy a hunting license or maybe don't hunt deer or, or maybe don't hunt at all. You know, but that like deer. They like to see them. They like to photograph them. They like to know that they're there. You know, it's going to take that group of people to really beat CWD. So what we do is, yeah, we teach our members and everybody that does hunt or care about deer what they can do but we try to take that next step as well and just ensure that the general citizens of the United States understands more about the true value of deer and now uh, you know you don't have to hunt them to understand that we know that the, the majority of our wildlife funding for all of our state wildlife agencies comes off the backs of hunters the vast majority of those are deer hunters so you know a deer hunter by buying his or her license and purchasing equipment to go helps fund, you know, much of our non-game wildlife programs, you know, our songbird programs, our herp and reptile and amphibian programs, all that stuff. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, that deer enthusiasts can help. So we, we make sure that they understand that and the importance that they have in this.
2: Awesome. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that we think about kind of all the time is how to activate, you know, the other folks. That's kind of our biggest thing. Um, you know, because as you pointed out, very, very obviously, if only 4% of us are hunting these and are the diehard enthusiasts, right, then not, we need 96% of those other folks to, to get engaged. Do you have any, you know, unique strategies or things that you've utilized that you're like, wow, this is working and this is helping, you know, people beyond the deer hunting community get engaged on this issue?
3: I think as much as anything is if we just need to let them realize, you know, really what's at stake. And uh, we, we can be so specific about the type of wildlife that we follow, whether, you know, we're, we're an upland bird hunter or we're a birder, you know, we're, and we watch songbirds so we, we kind of forget how they're all intertwined. And, uh, one of the things that's interesting about, you know, our organization, you know, we work with deer is that deer are a keystone species and they impact, you know, so many other wildlife species out there. So we try to help people realize, Hey, you know, if, if you do good for deer, you're not only helping deer, you're helping all this other stuff. And conversely, if you don't do good for deer, you're not only hurting deer, but you're hurting all these others as well. Uh, a great example of this is Joe Hamilton, who who is the founder of the QDMA. And, uh, you know, Joe is revered by many, you know, as the, the person that, that almost single-handedly changed how we hunt deer and how we view deer today. And, uh, but I will say this, you know, I've been lucky to spend a lot of days the Field with Joe. He is the most ardent birder I have ever seen. He can identify more songbirds by sight and sound than anybody I know, and I you know, that. if people who don't know him, they look at him as a dear guy. But Joe understands how everything fits in together, and uh, so I've always kept that at heart. And you know, when, when I'm working and teaching people, I try to, to make sure we impress upon them that. And uh, so I think that's pretty special about you know Joe and our organization, but anybody that cares for deer, I think it's pretty neat, you know, that they're taking care of a lot of other things out there as well.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's a good point. Go ahead, Aaron.
2: Sorry, I see. I just, I just wanted to kind of reiterate your point, man. Every, every sportsman and sportswoman I know, all the diehard hunters, man, they have such an appreciation beyond just what they're pursuing. Um, I mean, I'm a big birder myself. I know a lot of people who some of my favorite hunting partners are, are birders and people who just like, you know, I get caught up and fall on a turkey track or a, (laughs) or a bobcat or something when I'm out hunting a lot of times. And I've even done it to the degree that I'm like, Hey man, I better get back on track. I'm not out here for this right now, but you know, just that love of wildlife. I think that's a little bit lost. Um, sometimes with the, with the general public from the sporting community. And I know we do a lot to try and enhance that. Right. And to try and tell folks that story and bring that hunter knowledge about the landscape into other issues, because I mean, whether it's like we have, we work on climate, we work on, you know, infrastructure, all different kinds of things. And if you, if you think about the knowledge that someone has that goes to the same landscapes year after year and sees these changes and sees these things, that's kind of, you know, not, not matched by anybody else out there. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And I think, it's the same thing with CWD, right? We have to have hunters, and and it's gonna it's gonna take that group, telling and educating and showing the rest of the folks uh, what we have at stake here. So I just really wanted to put an emphasis on that point. Yeah, I think it's especially
3: important here today, given that you know, we're more of an urbanized society than, than we've ever been in our history. You know, more of us live closer to urban centers than rural areas today. And you take a look at a lot of the people in those environments, you know, and, and they don't, they either don't have that connection to deer or what they have is negative. You know, they think about, geez, I have Lyme disease because there's deer here, or my gosh, we hit another one, you know, in our suburban neighborhood with our car. So, uh, you know, they may love birds and they may love the squirrels that they see and all that, but they don't understand the connection or how deer helps them. So I think, you know, that challenge that we have is is more important today than ever before to share, you know, the the true value of deer, whether you live in suburbia or, you know, rural America.
1: Yeah, and I think trying to, underscore or further explore that funding umbrella right like if we think about deer as by way of license sales funding most the vast majority of wildlife management that can happen at the state level the converse is also true that cwd the management of it the the prevention of it is just sucking agencies dry i mean it's a huge drain on resources and i think we've talked about that a little on the podcast but you know the It comes down to, you know, the cost of testing, staff time to collect samples and to do surveillance and, um, you know, outreach to let people know how to submit samples and what the new regulations are. And um, I don't know, I feel like that's kind of a hidden cost that we don't think or talk about a lot. Um, But it's, again, impacting everything from, you know, songbirds to you name it. It's it's really a drag
3: yeah. If you take a look at any new state that, that when they first find the disease, um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a $250,000 bill between increased testing that's a result of an increased monitoring surveillance etc and you know it's not like agencies are flush with money in most cases and there's not a pool of money that they have oh you have cwd now here you go here's this to pay for it i mean there's there's essentially no federal funding for it which kudos to you guys for for talking with representative kind you know on that cwd bill and trying to get that so yeah agencies you know uh, it's it's good that they are testing and thank God they are, but it's not like there's a pool of money that, that comes from. So other wildlife programs suffer like access, like habitat management, land purchase, et cetera. So uh, it's a big deal. And I mean, look at Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the first state east of the Mississippi river to get the disease, you know, and in fast forward 20 years, they spent over $50 million, you know, and, and trying to to monitor and, and it was surveillance. So uh, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a big price tag for sure.
2: Let's get into some of that nitty gritty Kip, because I mean, I think that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Like what do hunters need to do? What, what behaviors do we have that maybe have to be altered? Things like that. You know, we hear things like herd reduction and baiting bands and, uh, controlled removals, all these things that are like, most of us are going, Oh gosh, what the heck's that going to look like? And that's scary. So, you know, there's a couple new states. They're going to start probably looking at, you know, the same kind of things, herd reductions, maybe baiting bans, you know, and hunters often oppose these, these actions. Let's talk about those and, and what, you know, what you would tell a hunter when they get the news that, Hey, you know, we're going to do some herd reduction over here, or, you know, you're going to have to change your behaviors. You're not gonna be able to bait. You're not gonna be able to do some of these other things that, you know, some hunters really like to do. Yeah. Um, What I tell hunters is, hey, let's just step back and take a
3: look at what really are the implications to us now. Um, And the thing that hurts the most is that as a hunting community, we often are very traditional. You know, like we like to hunt the same days. We like to go to the same spot. We like to be at a hunting camp or a hunting club with the same people. So anything that puts us out of that routine you know, in general, we tend to oppose that. And man, CWD really puts us out of that routine. So so I get it. You know, I, I totally understand that. So I try to tell folks, all right, let, let's just take a look at what the actual implications to us are, you know, and see what we can do to do our part to help this. The, the first thing is almost always, hey, let's reduce deer numbers. You know, our agency will say, even if that deer herd is in balance with the habitat, let's reduce those numbers. Because the one thing we do know is, um, Deer can share this with other deer that it come in contact with, you know, and that's one thing that's unfortunate about this, this version of the prion disease, you know, the version in cattle, you know, they can't give it to other cattle. man, I wish deer couldn't give it to other deer, but since they can, let's reduce deer numbers to help limit some of the spread of that disease. And immediately, you know, hunters will say, you know, I don't want this because, you know. You've never heard a hunter say, man, when I go today, I hope I see fewer deer than I did yesterday. We don't say that, right? <laughs> we say, man, I hope I see more deer than yesterday and more than last week. So, you know, is it is it a good strategy to reduce deer numbers? Um, it absolutely is. And, and this is coming from a diehard deer hunter, you know, that I love to see deer and I want to see a lot of deer when I hunt. But we need to reduce deer numbers simply to keep some of those deer from congregating and sharing that disease with each other. And we do know for a fact that if we can reduce them, that we can definitely slow the spread of this down. So, you know, does this have to be that way forever? No, not at all. If you allow the disease to continue to spread in that deer herd, it will be that way forever. So if we can take, you know, have a, a little bit of an inconvenience now, let's accept the fact that all right, we will see fewer deer, you know, in the short term, to make sure that we have healthy deer in the long term, I think that's well worth doing.
1: I like what you said, Kip, about hunters being creatures of habit. I can certainly identify with that. And I know that hunting, not just deer hunting, but certainly deer hunting is a very cultural phenomenon, right? Like if you learn to hunt from your dad or from your mom, um, it's a family thing. It's kind of a lot of those traditions are passed down. So it can be hard to pivot, especially when it's not by choice, right? Like when there's new regs and you're having to kind of be reactive that way. But one of the things I think about a lot when I think about this and talk with other people about it is deer hunting has not always looked like it looks today, right? Like it's changed a lot over just, if you just think about, um, like European settlement here in North America through that whole timeline, things have looked very different. Um, I know this isn't related to deer, but when you think about duck hunters of old with punk guns, you know, going out in a boat and just shooting at a flock of ducks with this basically huge cannon and dropping, you know, a hundred ducks, like that's crazy. We wouldn't even call that hunting now today. So I don't know. I think that, I guess what I'm saying is I think there's always, there's room for new traditions to be made and thinking that just because something has been done one way Forever, quote unquote, which might just be three generations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not. It's not impossible to change.
3: No, you're absolutely right, and uh, you know the. The hunt or the deer numbers thing—that's certainly a big one. Because regardless, if you hunt, you know, by yourself or at a camp or whatever, we want to see deer, so I get that. Um, you know, there's other things that impact some of the, the traditions that we have once CWD arrives as well. That, that hunters can can be a little averse to things like you know having to have your deer tested. You know, you have to take it in some states to a check station. Um, in some cases, you go home with a headless deer because they keep the head. You know, and a non-hunter probably looks at it like, well, you know, like, what's the big deal? Uh, but to a hunter, you know, that can be a big deal. Or maybe your your significant other is not a hunter, and you come home with this headless animal that you know that suddenly you may understand as a hunter. Well, I left this for testing. But if you're not a hunter, you know that can be a pretty stark image to to see that. So you know, there's a lot of smaller pieces like that that do affect hunters in these cwd zones that I think it's good to talk about I think it's good to make sure they you know that they're uh, exposed to these and are aware of them and just understand that how okay by doing this you know you're going to help the future I am always trying to make sure we impress upon them hey we're not we're not just thinking about this year or next year we're making sure we have healthy deer you know 5 10 20 and, and 50 years down the road so these are some of the things we have to do in the short term to to
2: make sure that we can have that Let's talk about a couple of other things with that, Kip, because, you know, hunter behavior determines so much of this. Um, and so obviously we want to drill down on a couple of those things. And, you know, one is like baiting and feeding, right? Congregating deer. If you bring them in and maybe they congregate in, in abnormal numbers, obviously the, the propensity for, for CWD to spread. I mean, logic would tell you it's true. And then I think we've proved it, you know, if, if you're concentrating deer too, it's a problem what do you tell hunters about that? Or, you know, besides what do you tell hunters, but also, you know, what should we be doing about that with some of these traditions? You know, they're traditions there. You might have three generations, like we've talked about, of of folks who've been putting out salt licks or, or, you know, feed stations in certain places. How do we get them to start buying in and thinking about different ways to help control the spread yeah, boy, that, the whole baiting and feeding issue, uh,
3: man, that runs deep in the hunting community, really, really deep. Um, with that one, you know, th- there's, there's a lot that we don't know about CWD. Um, one of the things that we do know is that CWD and other diseases are much more readily spread at sites where deer are swapping saliva. You know, at bait sites, at mineral sites. So we we can argue, you know, the ethics of feeding or baiting, and and that in my mind makes has no bearing on this as a disease, because the science is very very clear that when those deer are, are mouthing, you know, the same spot, that the disease uh, it or spread increases. So you know, some folks will say it's totally fine to bait, and you know, I I, I won't bait, debate you on that. whether, you know, ethically, that's right or not but I certainly can debate you that man, from a disease standpoint, that is not a good thing. So uh, I I think anywhere there's a disease, there should be no baiting, there should be no feeding. you know, we can do a good job making sure that we provide adequate nutrition through good habitat management with that. You know, we, we don't need to dump it out of a bag and, and have deer eating right on top of each other. And and this is coming from somebody, you know, I have been in states where feeding was legal. Um, I've been in states where hunting over bait was legal, and I, and I have done that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not some purist by any means. I'm, I'm truly looking at this from a disease standpoint. Um of the different ways that, that deer can can shed these infectious materials. You know, we, we talked about urine and feces and all that. Um, it's extremely, extremely unlikely that a deer that has a disease will infect another one through the urine. It can happen, but it's very unlikely. For saliva, it's much, much different. So when deer are at these mineral licks and bait sites, you know, they are swapping saliva on a pretty regular basis because once those materials are on the ground, you know, in some cases they can be there months or even years and, and still infect deer that come in contact with them. So, um, it, yeah, the, the science is very clear on that part of it. So yeah, I think they all should be outlawed, uh, if you're inside a disease zone.
2: So Kip, do you think we should be going for just, uh, you know, a, a, a widespread kind of ban of, of feeding and, and, and baiting type stations? I mean, do you think that would really be a, a tool that would you know really slow the spread if we did that you know i mean obviously we want state we want to keep state's ability to manage deer um and rather than a federal rule i think i think a lot of people would have heartburn with that but you know is that something that would be an effective strategy the community should be pushing towards i think that once you have the disease absolutely
3: um uh, it is such a hot issue and so politically motivated in most cases that there's not a state wildlife agency that will touch that if they're not in a disease zone. Uh, we even have some states uh, such as, uh, you know, Alabama and, and Arkansas that uh, we're still allowing baiting in their disease zones. Actually, Alabama just passed baiting. So they they had not had baiting until here within the last few years. And they got it in the face of you know encroaching CWD. Arkansas, on the other hand, you know, that does have it, you know, they still have baited in those zones. And I mean, that's certainly not from the biological end. It's not what the the, the Arizona, you know, Game and Fish Commission deer biologists want. I mean, that's 100% politically driven. And uh, so there, there's no state that will attack that. So should, should you have it or should you not? You know, science is pretty clear that that's just simply not a good practice for our deer herds.
1: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I have um, friends who live in and hunt in states where you can bait and that don't have CWD. And I have this conversation ad nauseum with them. I feel like, they're like, well, we don't have it. You know, if, if it comes, then yeah. And I'm like, you know what? How many times, how many times has CWD existed in a state long before the state knew about it? And I would postulate that it's almost every time, right? Because surveillance is so complicated and expensive and difficult that if you're not, I mean, right, if you have a neighboring state right next to you that has a super high prevalence of CWD, you're going to be investing more in surveillance. But I mean, thinking about Louisiana, the deer that was just found positive there was clinical. And to me, what that says is that you have been sick for quite some time. And that probably there's other sick deer out there on the landscape as well that it got the disease from so that's one of my struggles is that the knowledge we we don't we have incomplete knowledge of the distribution of the disease and that's continuous that's not just today like we're not going to get complete knowledge next week so I don't know from my personal perspective I feel like we should just be all hands on deck doing whatever we can to prevent it
3: yeah, I mean, that, that is a big scare in Louisiana with that one. Um, and, you know, and that's the thing with hunters. I say, geez, I don't find dead deer all over. So how can you tell me this is a problem? And, uh, and what they need to, to realize is that the disease can can be in a deer for, you know, or actually the average incubation period is 18 to 24 months. So, you know, it, it takes a long time before deer start showing symptoms. Once they do, they, they waste away very quickly. However, the whole time you know that that disease is eating holes in that deer's brain so you know it just makes them far more likely to die to predators hunters cars etc so um yeah most people will never see a deer that's clinical like they like they had there in louisiana so the fact that they did find that that suggests that yeah that's been there a while um, Tennessee and, and Arkansas, both of those states, when they found the first case, started testing in and around those areas and then realized, wow, we have a lot of it. And in both cases, they, they later estimated that the disease had probably been there for 10 years before they found it. So, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right with your advice. And folks say, well, we don't have it. You don't know that you don't have it. And uh, if you are anywhere near another state that does, there's probably a better than average chance that you do have it and you just haven't found it yet.
2: So I think we can just kind of, I mean, I hate to make broad generalizations, but we can kind of act like it's everywhere, right? I mean, give or take. I I don't want to say that because it's not proven, but it basically is because every time we think it's not somewhere, it pops up not too long after. But one of the other things, you know, that I think we, we talked about reluctance for hunters to change their behaviors. One of the other things we see in hunters, right, and it's kind of a tradition you know, you pass on the smaller bucks and you let them get older and you, you know, you work up to that big, you know, trophy class or, or maybe close buck. Right. And, and we know also that CWD tends to congregate in those older, mature bucks, you know, so how do we balance managing that? Or do we need to kind of change some of those regs or traditions or, you know, the way we go about it, or how do we balance managing that older age class, buck, kind of, you know, tradition in the sporting community that most folks or a lot of folks adhere to yeah that's a great question today we have arguably the the most
3: natural or or at least the oldest age structure of bucks on the landscape that we've had probably in the last 100 years Um, this past hunting season you know, of all the bucks that were shot in the U S 41% of them are three and a half and older. We've been monitoring this for the past 20 years and it's the highest percentage ever. So, uh, you know, we have more natural age structures today, which is great, except when you have CWD. And so we know that older bucks have, are you know, twice as likely to have the disease, you know, as, as younger deer, um, or as does. So, you know, I think this is a difficult thing for a lot of the public because what we hear is our state wildlife agencies will say, all right, you know, older bucks are more likely to have the disease. So let's do all we can, you know, to keep those age structures young. And, you know, on paper, that makes a lot of sense, you know, but in reality, we need hunters to actually implement those plans. So we need to keep hunters engaged, you know, actively pursuing not just bucks, but antlerless deer too. So where we often, I think, miss the message to hunters is that, yes, bucks are more likely to have the disease than antlerless deer are. However, in many cases, you know, twice as likely. But in almost every deer population in the country, there are at least twice as many adult does out there as there are adult bucks. So even though those older bucks are more likely to have it, if you look at the sheer numbers of animals on the landscape, you almost always have more adult does that are infected than bucks. So just focusing harvest effort on bucks, I think is a terrible mistake because then you not only are not targeting the antlers deer, so then deer populations rise above what they can. They start degrading habitat. And just because of the way deer live, you know, in these groups where any doe group you have, you know, grandmothers and mothers and aunts and sisters, research out of Wisconsin shows that if you have one CWD positive adult doe, that all of her relatives that live near her are 10 times more likely to be positive too. It's just because of their interaction. So what we end up with then are these, you know, reservoirs of does with that are positive, which then just contribute to exacerbate this disease. So I'm not saying don't focus on bucks. What I'm saying is, Hey, we can't forget about the does in this fight. You know, we need to be harvesting from both ends. And we know nationally that only about 40% of all of our hunters will shoot one deer in any given year. So less than half of all the hunters kill a single deer. And only about 18% of hunters shoot more than one deer. So why I'm saying, I think some states are focusing too much effort on bucks. As soon as they say, do that, hunters kill a buck. Most of them then will never, ever, they they don't continue to hunt. And then they certainly don't harvest an antlerless deer. So deer populations rise, numbers of CWD positive animals spread, and it just makes everything worse. So I think a much more balanced approach is needed where we tell hunters, yes, bucks are more likely to have it, but hey, here's what we need you to do. We need you, you know, to take one of each or, you know, or in some cases where, you know, the the deer herds can withstand it. Let's make sure we harvest enough deer to be working at it from both ends, not just trying to focus all effort on bucks. Because we know that, that, that bucks make people engaged and want to go afield, so, The NDA's position is, you know, if we have some older bucks out there, it's kind of like a carrot at the end of the stick to help keep hunters engaged, supportive of CWD management efforts, continue to harvest antlerless deer as well, and do our part. Because it's very clear that we are not going to beat this disease by continuing to only have 40% of our hunters shoot a deer, you know, and and less than 20% shooting more than one in any given year.
1: Kip, that's such an excellent point. I feel like so, back in graduate school, I remember um, a, sp- a specific class I took where we learned about how changing regulations influences hunter behavior. And basically, it doesn't, at least like liberalizing regulations, right? So, when bag limits are increased, specifically around deer, um, it's a rare hunter that actually goes out on the landscape and harvests more deer than they typically would anyway. You know, if you lengthen a season or some people will, of course, but by and large, if you're looking at a, you know, from a management perspective, uh, population level, it's not going to have a huge um, impact. And it's the stat that you gave about was 40, 41% of yeah. deer hunters um, harvested. to
3: do. Yeah. 40%. 40%. That's,
1: that's wild to me. I didn't know that. Um, so this brings to mind one of the tools that I know managers often implement in areas where CWD has been found to achieve herd reductions, or I should say, they would like, maybe would like to implement, try to implement sharpshooting or targeted removals. And I know that that can be really unpalatable for hunters. I mean, you know, you think about, you sit sit around all year getting ready for deer season, and then here you've got these professionals that are going to come in and just, you know, wipe them out, basically. Um, That's a hard pill to swallow. But There's some interesting research that was done in Missouri that showed um, when sharpshooters went in like post hunting season. So hunters had their chance, like they did every year to harvest deer. Then they did targeted removals and those specialists removed CWD positive deer at, I think, three times. I'm going to see how I can say this Mm -hmm. so it makes sense. Like the removals that they, the deer that they harvested were three times as likely to be positive for CWD than the ones that were hunter harvested. So whether it be, you know, they were probably able to go out there at night and use infrared and what have you, they have more tools in the toolbox, but they were much more effective at removing those infected deer from the landscape than hunters themselves were. And I feel like I can say honestly, because of my education and and background related to deer, if, if CWD popped up, where I live in my county, and there were targeted removals, I would support that. But I know that somebody who doesn't have the, you know, the background and the information that I have, it would be hard pressed to be excited, you know, to even find that acceptable. So can we talk a little bit about that and kind of, I don't know. Yeah. What what do you have to say about that?
3: No, I think that you're absolutely right. Um and We are fans. We be in the National Deer Association, you know, we support that selective removal and, and those sharpshooting programs that are particularly the ones that are done after season. You know, after hunters have had a chance to, to remove as many deer as, as the state agency wants. Um, yeah, they are far more likely to to remove the positive animals, and we have seen examples, as you said, in Missouri. Uh, there's a great example out of Minnesota, and the best example is out of Illinois. You know, where they can go in and do that, um, Illinois. You know, the short story is they found CWD at the same time Wisconsin did one to 2% prevalence rates in both fast forward 20 years, Illinois has always done sharpshooting and those targeted removal programs in and around areas that had the disease. Wisconsin abandoned that a long time ago today in the core area of Wisconsin, you know, there's 30 to 60% prevalence rates in those deer in Illinois, where they have continued to do it, you know, they're still under 10%, you know, they're around that 5% prevalence rate. So does this work? Absolutely it works. And even though hunters hear sharpshooting and they think, oh my gosh, all the deer are going to be gone, the reality is that's not true. It's, It's usually a pretty small number of animals that get removed. It's just the high target probability ones that may have the disease. So you end up removing a larger number of CWD positive animals off the landscape with fewer and minimal impacts to the actual hunters out there. And in almost every case, once those deer are gone, you know, if, if hunters didn't know that sharpshooting program happened, they would never even realize it, you know, from a hunting perspective, because they're not recognizing, you know, one fewer deer per square mile or, or whatever the case may be where they have. So the perception over here is it is that, man, they are wiping the deer herd out. It's all gone. The reality of it is there's not all that many deer that are removed, but it's the high target ones that are being removed. So that absolutely helps hunters in those areas. And I'm um, the same way. Uh, God forbid CWD arrives in my area in Pennsylvania. If it does, uh, I'd be the first one in line to say, yes, you, you're welcome to use my property after season You know, to, to be able to do this because it really, really makes a difference for hunters and it's in their best interest, even though the perception of it is pretty bad in many cases.
2: Kip, I know Ashley might still have some more hunter behavior questions for you. But we've talked about that a lot. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the things that are outside the lines of what the hunting community might be able to do and, you know, things like captive servids and transportation uh, of, of captive servids and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, NDAs, you know, policies or thoughts or, or desires when it comes to captive servids or interstate transport or other things that, you know, are Outside the realm of, of what the average hunter might be able to do or state agencies, as far as, you know, hunting goes? Sure. We, we think that the, we should stop all movement of live animals,
3: you know, no movement of live deer by by deer farms or state wildlife agencies. And and the reason for that is because we don't have a good live animal test. You know, as we talked earlier, this disease can be prevalent in a deer for, you know, several months up to two years before they show any signs. And what that means is a lot of deer just unknowingly get moved that have the disease. And then as soon as they're moved, they take that disease with them. So there's, there's lots of live animal tests that are there in the research phase. You know, there, there's tonsil biopsies, there's rectal biopsies. The rectal biopsies seem to, to be about the best, but unfortunately they, they don't work very well at all for elk and they miss a lot of whitetails that are in the early stages of the disease. So they may have it, The test just doesn't show it and then they end up being moved so so our stance is hey let's not move these deer because we know this is the single best way that to to move the disease to a new area so if we stop moving them can we help absolutely you know and and to somebody who's not pays attention to this they say you know is this really a problem It, it absolutely is you can look at you know states like texas Pennsylvania and others that have the most deer farms in the country, it's crazy the number of animals that are being moved on a very regular basis. Now, we do have a a national herd certification program implemented by the USDA to to try to limit spread of any of these positive animals, Um, but it's very clear that that does not work because every year deer from farms that are in that program and certified CWD-free end up moving deer to other farms, in many cases across state lines, and then take that disease with them and it infect new areas. So what we need to fix that program, a live animal test would solve all this, one that's that's reliable and practical. Uh, we're just not there yet. We just don't have it. So until that happens, um, we should stop all live movements of deer and that would really help us in this fight.
2: I was hoping you were going to break the news to us that you, you had a live animal test ready to, <laughs> to, to, to unveil. That would have been a good piece of news. Uh, uh, all kidding aside, let's talk a little bit too about that because the, the movement part, because it seems like no matter who we talk to and, you know, on the podcast or beyond, everybody agrees, you know, transportation is a big issue. Uh, live animal transportation. It seems to me like there's so much consensus about that being an issue what are the roadblocks i mean it, it seems like we should be able to just go boom okay we're done with that it's it's an obvious vector talk about the roadblocks to to making that happen um, that's mostly because while the wildlife community recognizes it
3: as that big of an issue and that easy of a potential solution uh, the, the agriculture community does not you know and the majority of deer farms in the united states are regulated through the State Department of Ag rather than the State Wildlife Agency, you know, and they look at this very differently. You know, they look at this as a commodity product, you know, as something that's helping the economy, that's helping those those rural uh, landowners. So, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to see this stop. They want to see them be able to move those deer, you know, and be compensated for that. So, uh, so that's really the issue here. And uh, you know the deer farmers, even though they're a pretty small group relative to hunters, you know they're very well connected uh, politically, and uh, and they, they they win the fight on almost every case because of that. So yeah, it's easy for us to say, hey, we know this issue, let's not move it. But uh, you know, for from a deer farmer perspective, you know that's their livelihood, and uh, and they're they're very good at keeping uh, being able to do what they do.
1: Yeah, honestly, it's pretty frustrating for me to to be, you know. Bent over, sweating, trying to debone a hind before I'm gonna drive ten miles from where I harvested harvested this year, and then I think about, um, you know, deer farmers taking big Jim from his pen in one state, you know, across in a horse trailer to another to do whatever they're gonna do with them. It's it feels sometimes kind of futile and like um, like we don't have very much power to preserve this resource that we care so much about.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm bashing deer farmers. You know, I, I know a lot of people who are in that industry and they're, they're good people. You know, they're, they're not all bad people by any means. And what I tell them is, look, you know, we were friends, you know, before this whole disease thing came out. And, uh, you know, uh, we can be friends afterwards if you want, but uh, we'd be a lot better friends if you'd stop moving deer. You know, if you want to keep them there, that's one thing. Just don't bring any in and don't take any out. You know? <laughs> so there's obviously some other issues with with deer that escape and, you know, fences down and all of that. But boy, the big thing is movement. If we could just stop that, we'd be miles ahead uh, in this battle.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about what average, you know, Joe or Jane can do. What, 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 if you're, if you're just talking to somebody, you know, nothing about this and they say, Hey, you know, I want to help. I'm, I'm pretty freaked out. I see, see the writing on the wall. This is a big problem. What should I be doing? What do you tell that person?
3: The, the, what we just discussed relative to, Hey, support any efforts to, to stop live movement of any deer that that will go a long way. Um, Make sure that you support uh, movements on uh, the travel restrictions for any of those high risk parts of deer that are harvested. And uh, and do, you know, if you're if you are a hunter, make sure all of your buddies know that that that, that is restricted. You know, you can't move those. Um, I'm always amazed, you know, as I travel around the U.S. for work or to hunt and, uh, and talk to people about that. You know, how, how many people don't realize what do you mean I can't move this? You know, so, you know, that we look at it as, hey, you got your license, you got your regulations book, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, there's not a lot of people that read that cover to cover. So um, I think every single hunter out there can help by letting their, their hunting buddies know what the regulations are and, and make sure that they follow them. You know, sometimes it takes peer pressure for somebody to follow them. And uh, and if you're not a hunter, if you're a wildlife enthusiast, well, you can support your state wildlife agency's efforts at. This, you know, continue to learn as much as you can. There are certainly some landowners that don't hunt, that have hunters hunt on their properties. You know, hey, make sure they're following all those rules, you know, and doing what they can to to make sure that they're not contributing to the spread of this disease.
1: So, QDMA, which has now become a part of NDA, um, but back when it was QDMA, publicly opposed multiple live deer importation bills. So, we know this is something that. Um, the organization cares about and is passionate about. What do you think is the single biggest thing that NDA has done in the fight against CWD?
3: Uh, Certainly uh, the the help that we have provided with representative Kine's office uh, to to help with that legislation, that would be an absolute game changer. You know, if if that passes, if we have that funding available to the States to, to really be able to manage this, you know, and monitor it, um, also, just we have worked uh, with, with several grant foundations and with several state wildlife agencies to help increase capacity for testing. You know that's one of the biggest bottlenecks. Is you know we, we encourage hunters: if you're in a disease zone, get your animal tested. The state wildlife agency needs the results of that so they can measure prevalence rate of the disease and rate of spread. But also, you know, don't eat that deer, you know, until you receive a satisfactory test. The problem is the turnaround times, you know, anywhere from one to three weeks in many places that somebody has to wait, you know, and that's simply because capacity for testing is just way too low. Um, So anybody who's business minded and, you know, uh, as an entrepreneur absolutely has a good opportunity here, you know, to be able to increase, you know, labs, you know, to do this. We have great equipment for this. Um, We just need more of it. Um, You know, it doesn't take that long to run a sample. Most of that turnaround time is waiting between you when you drop that head off and it gets to the person to run the sample, and then you actually get the result back. So shoot, you know, we could have results back you know, within a day you know, if we had uh, increased capacity for testing. So we, we talk about that on a regular basis. We help, you know, have, have helped increase capacity in different states, and, uh, and we will keep trying to, to increase that so that hunters don't have to wait so long before they get those results, you know, that allows them to just be more responsible with either consuming or donating that as well as making the decision to have it tested in the first place.
2: Let me ask one more little hypothetical question, Kip, you know, with all your experience looking back over the, you know, the, the progression of the disease over all these different States, you know, what's the one thing you would have done or, or you think just across the board should have been done differently. And, you know, maybe what lesson that teaches us teaches us as we as we move forward? I think that initially, we some states took too
3: hard of a stance against this relative to eradication of the deer. Um, we will never ever beat this without hunter involvement. And, and I firmly believe that we need more or better working relationships between hunters and landowners and our state wildlife agencies than ever before to be able to beat this. And uh, early on, there were some pretty hard lines drawn by some state wildlife agencies that really separated hunters from that and got it so that they weren't working together. And I think we lost a lot of time in this fight because of it. So I think more states today are doing a far better job. Sharing information with the hunters and then working with them more as partners, rather than uh, a supervisor kind of an employee relationship, and uh, and I think that engagement is paying dividends and uh, and is helping now. So if we could go back and do it all over again, I think if we had that better relationship early on, uh, we we would be a little bit farther ahead today.
1: Wise words, Kip, Wise words. I think the the example you gave earlier um, between Wisconsin and Illinois or Iowa. Illinois. Yep, Illinois. Yeah, that illustrates that really well. You know what what can happen differently. Um, Well, is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't touched on yet?
3: I think it's um, just to to make sure that folks are aware. Hey, there's a lot of resources out here and places that they can go to continue learning. now, a lot of state wildlife agencies have good websites. Certainly, uh, our CWD Resource Center at the National Deer Association is a great source for folks. We try to always provide things that, that they can do, whether it's videos that they can watch or information they can read. But uh, um, I, I don't think that this is grim. You know, I think I, I actually I am a firm believer that we are going to beat this. And the, and the more people, whether they hunt or not, that get involved and, and you know and do their part with this, I think uh, the more quickly we will beat it. So that, that's the way we look at it. We, we certainly don't feel that all is lost. Uh, we're, we're, we're well in this fight. And uh, by the end of this, we're, we're going to come out on top. So uh, I think we need to keep that optimistic uh, attitude toward this, because as soon as we give up, all is lost. And uh, deer and all wildlife are just far too important to, to give up. So um, I'd encourage them to go and learn all they can and, uh, and be able to do their part. I like I it. That. Glass, glass half full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I love that. We need a dose of optimism these days, or or always. Thank you, Kip.
1: Yeah. Well, Kip, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think we've we've got a lot of great takeaways here, and I think I hope that our listeners feel like, you know, this this episode was really about them. It was it was for them even more than the other episodes have been because we're hunters too. Like we we care we care about this from that perspective as well. So. Thank you for all of your insight.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, thank you for for what you guys do to help inform sportsmen and women uh, on this topic and everything else. And uh, I've had a good time today. So uh, thank you.
1: Cheers, Kip. Take care. Yeah. And stay tuned for our next episode in the series. The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles.
2: A production of NWF Outdoors and Artemis.